So we're going to be looking at holiness tonight. We're, we've been considering lessons in uh, following the Master, and who better to learn from than the most holy person who has ever walked this earth. Since he's the most holy person, our Lord Jesus Christ, and of course is the best person to teach us about holiness. But as I say that, you might have a nagging feeling. How can Jesus teach us about holiness? I mean, wasn't it like easier for him? After all, he was God. I mean, wouldn't it be easier for us to be holy if we didn't have a sinful nature? Well, he didn't have a sinful nature, so it was easier for him. And don't we also believe that Jesus couldn't sin? Well, that would really help, wouldn't it? If we couldn't sin, I mean, it would help us be holy, wouldn't it? So there's a bit of a problem with following Jesus to be holy because, well, wasn't it easier for him? And think about this, that if we experience sinful lust and we believe that Jesus never experienced sinful lust, so wasn't it easier for him to be holy than for us to be holy? Well, I want us to tackle that head on because the answer, of course, is absolutely not. Because when we look at this passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, we see that Jesus was tempted in real and serious ways. And in fact, I want to argue it was harder for him than for the rest of us. And yet he resisted temptation. And you can't argue it's easier for him unless you're going to say that it's easier to come from the heights of glory and to be born humbly on earth, to go on a 40-day fast, to be tempted and get the special attention of the chief of demons, to be rejected by your own people, abandoned by your disciples, then crucified, and the suffering that the Romans inflicted is nothing in comparison with what Christ underwent on the cross as he took the penalty for our sins. Unless you're going to say, that was easier, please don't tell me it was easier for Jesus. In fact, that's completely the wrong way round. It's not that it was easier for him because he was holy. It was precisely harder for him because he was the Holy One who came to this earth to rescue us from our mess to make us holy. In fact, he did everything on the cross for us and what we're doing now is we're enjoying the benefits of the fact that he did everything for us. You see? So please don't think it was easier for our Lord Jesus. He was the perfect one to teach us about holiness. He suffered because he was God's holy one. So we're going to look at the three temptations here mentioned in Luke chapter 4. Now, they're also mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, and it's very similar. Just one point to uh, mention, and that is in Matthew, the second and third temptation are in the reverse order from what we find uh, in Luke. And... Some people would explain that and say, well, Matthew joins the temptations with the word then. In other words, saying this was happened straight afterwards, and Luke just joins them with and. So maybe Luke's arranged them in a topical order, and Matthew's arranged them in a chronological order. You could also look at it like this, that often temptation is like, it's intense, it's like waves of the sea that come back again and again, and maybe that's the way it happened. But either way, Jesus was tested and is victorious. So here's the first temptation. I'm going to read it again. And Jesus, 
full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, second time we've heard Spirit in that verse, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he had nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who supremely is holy and is led by the Spirit. And where is he led to? He's led, strangely, into the wilderness, into the desert. But what's it mean to be holy? What's this expression, even Holy Spirit, mean? Well, if you want to work out what the word holy means in the Bible, the best way to do it is to look at the Bible and to trace it through. So the first time we get this word is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where it said, God made the seventh day holy. Now, the other days were good days, but this was a day that was set apart. It was special. Next time we come across it, we find it's in Exodus chapter 13. And in chapter 13 and verse 2, it says that the firstborn sons of the Israelites were set apart as holy to God. Well, what's wrong with the other sons? They were okay too. But God said, these ones, especially, are mine. I guess that we have special things too. Maybe you've got special clothes. I mean, you know, you've got clothes and you've got a choice of clothes, but you've got special clothes and you probably don't do the house cleaning in your best clothes. You might have special meals, the ones you really look forward to. Well, you probably don't binge them in the back of your car. Some days are special. Birthdays. Ideally, you wouldn't spend the whole of your birthday doing the homework. So we can have the idea of special things. Now, God owns the entire universe. Okay, it's all his. But within the universe, he says that some things are special to him. Now, obviously, there are sinful things and there are non-sinful things. And he says that within the universe, some things that are non-sinful are set apart for him and he calls them specially holy they are specially his even though everything's his he has special things and this is a really remarkable thing in the new testament it calls us his saints which means his special people because we are holy and guess what without sin in his eyes we are washed from our sins and we are holy and we are set apart and he says I own the entire universe, but you, my child, are special to me. You are part of, in everything in the universe, you are something, someone who is very special to me. And that's just amazing. And as we read through Luke's gospel, you come across holy a number of times. You read in chapter one of how John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's always going to be filled. And then his mother, Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And his father, Zacharias, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you read how Simeon, in chapter 2, the old man, is filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you come to Jesus, and it's a bit different. Because 
In chapter 1, verse 35, this is what the angel said to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, the other ones don't get called something specially holy. They have the Holy Spirit on them. Or, as it says in chapter 3, John the Baptist talks about Jesus and he says... This one who's coming after me is the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. There's no one else who baptizes others in the Holy Spirit because he releases the Holy Spirit and blesses us with the Holy Spirit in a way that the others don't. Chapter 3, verse 22. The Holy, uh, his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. No one else had the Holy Spirit descend on them in bodily form. You see, amongst all of the special ones of God, Jesus is super, super special. And we come to this passage and we see that he is led by the Holy Spirit. He is led, in fact, driven into the desert. It's an incredible scene. Straight after his baptism, where is he led? He's led into the desert. Who else has been in the desert as we've been reading through the Bible? Oh, yeah, the Israelites. How long were they in the desert? Uh, 40 years, wasn't it? And Jesus in the desert for 40 days. Oh, and the Israelites were uh, going to be a year in the desert, a year for each day that the spies had spied out the land, the 40 days they spied out the land. There's a parallel there. And how were they led? Oh, in the desert they were led by God himself in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And here we say Christ being led in the desert by God himself, by the Holy Spirit. What was their direction? Well, the Israelites were going to the promised land. In fact, they needed to cross over the Jordan. And Christ's direction is to come back from the Jordan. He's reversing their steps as he's reversing so much of what they do. What did they eat in the desert? Oh, they ate well. They ate bread from heaven, supplied by God. God gave them, he supplied all of their need. What did Jesus eat in the desert? Nothing. But he fed on the word of God. What else happened in the desert to the Israelites? Exodus chapter 15, verse 25. It says that God tested the Israelites. God tested the Israelites. Also, Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. It says that they tested him. God tested them. They tested him. What about Jesus? He was tested by Satan and he passed the test. He couldn't be overcome and he did not set a test for God. So what happened? Well, it says he did not eat for 40 days. Now, notice, it doesn't say he did not eat and did not drink for 40 days. It simply says he did not eat. And I think this makes it different from Moses' fast. You remember in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the tablets. um, It says in uh, Exodus 34, verse 28, he did not eat and did not drink. Now, that's not normally physically possible for humans. And what it doesn't say about Moses is that he was ever hungry. In other words, God supernaturally sustained him. He wasn't in great pain as he was up the mountain. With Jesus, it was different. See, I don't think he was helped physically as if this was somehow easier for him. I presume he drank and he fasted. I once had a Korean student when I was lecturing in Aberdeen uh, who was a Christian. And uh, 
we once, I think he must have raised the subject, we somehow got onto the subject of fasting. I don't normally raise it with people. And uh, he had done a long fast. I think it was something like 13 or 14 days. But he said, yeah, that's nothing compared with many of my colleagues in, in South Korea. You know, quite a few of them have done 40-day fasts. And then he added, you know, they don't normally die. They don't normally die. No, they only die if they come off the fast too quickly. Then they die, you know, it attacks their organs, backs up and so on. In other words, 40 days is, is a very, very vulnerable time. And, and we know this for all sorts of medical research. I mean, when you look, look at the length of time, people have done hunger strikes and all sorts of other things. You know that when it gets to 40 days, it's at a critical point and the body craves food. Now, have you ever felt hungry? If I skip one meal, I usually feel hungry. Imagine this hunger. Now, are we going to say it was easier for Jesus? Who's in the it was easier for Jesus camp? Good. <laughs> Imagine the hunger once you've been without food for 40 days. But why fast at all? I mean, there's nothing wrong with food. After all, God made it. In fact, the way God made the body is he made the body so that it needed food. I guess he could have made bodies so they didn't need food, but he made them so they did. So why fast at all? Well, you see, Jesus isn't turning away from food because food is sinful. He's turning towards God because he is special and holy, and set apart from God. He didn't just say no to sin, he said no to things that were not sin. Didn't just say no to sin, he said no to things that were not sin, so that he could dedicate himself to God. And so for those 40 days, he said no to food, because he wanted to say yes to God, and he wanted to say there's something more fundamental, even than food. And what, what more basic needs do we have than food? There's something more fundamental. And this is how he re- could reply to Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you know why he could reply to that? Well, it's a great reply, isn't it? He's the wisest person as well as the most holy person ever to walk. Do you think he'd been thinking about that verse quite a bit? During all those days? Man shall not live by bread alone. That's what drove the fast in the first place. Understanding that the thing that we have to dedicate ourselves to is every word that comes from God. Our goal in life is not success. Right? Not success. Our goal in life is to be faithful to God's word. In fact, we've got one job. I'm going to use an old word. To heed. It means to listen and do. Okay, to heed God's word. That's our one job. The one measure of how healthy the church is, is how much is the church heeding God's word. There is no other measure. That's it. How much are we being transformed? We as God's people should be obsessed with the question, what does God tell me to do? That's our one job. So we see that Christ is obsessed by God's word. But let's also look at this temptation. You see, Satan waited till Jesus was at his hungriest. No doubt he'd been eyeing him before, and at the end of the 40 days he approached. If you are the son of God, 
command this stone to become bread. It's a brilliant temptation. First, it begins with an element of doubt if you are um, God's, word, uh, God's son. And, you know, he brought in doubt as he, as he addressed Eve in the garden. But also, it seems like a practical thing. He needs food. He's got the power to make food. There's no command in the Bible against him making food. I mean, one stone, just, just one stone, turn one stone into one loaf. That's it. You know, that's all you need to do. Feel a lot less hungry after that. But what's the temptation? Well, I asked the young people this earlier, and they had a lot of good replies for why Jesus shouldn't do this. One thing is, don't do anything that Satan tells you to do. That seemed a a useful one. Um, And uh, also, don't, you know, Jesus never performs miracles just because someone asks him to do. Um, Jesus' miracles were ways to help others. But also, Jesus' miracles are never to make it easier for himself. You see, he came down to suffer alongside us, not to have it cushy, cushier than us, you see? But Satan's temptation is a subtle one, isn't it? We could discuss for a while what the element of temptation is, because actually there are several things, so it's just moving you off course. His mission is to follow God. His calling at this point is to think that God's word is everything. This is, this is what he's... He'd been set apart by the Holy Spirit for a fast and, and Satan just wants him to move him away from that, that goal. You know, Satan's great at just slightly distracting us. But that slight distraction can lead to such a huge thing. Christ replies, man shall not live by bread alone. He replies, even in his weakness, using scripture. He lent on scripture. When we're feeling weak, lean on scripture. When you're feeling strong, lean on scripture. The one thing we need is God's word. What a contrast with Israel. Israel were given God's command, his word, at the beginning of their time in the desert. Did they keep it? Not at all. It's not just a contrast with Israel, it's also a contrast with Adam and Eve. Look at just before this passage, just before uh, chapter 3, verse 23, to the end of chapter 3, has been the genealogy of Jesus. And it's unlike the one in Matthew, which goes down the generations, this goes up the generations. begins with uh, Jesus there in chapter 3, verse 23, and it works all the way up, chapter 3, verse uh, 28, to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So in other words, Adam is Jesus' ancestor, and also Adam is in some way son of God. So if you like, you've got two sons of God. Jesus, son of God, and Adam, son of God. Yes, son of God in different ways, just like Paul calls them the first Adam, the second Adam, the first Adam, the last Adam. (laughs) Satan tempted Adam to eat fruit in the middle of a lush garden when he had all the food he could have wanted, and he gave in. Satan failed in his temptation of Jesus to eat food in the middle of the desert when he was absolutely starving. You see, Christ reverses the failure of Israel, of Adam, and of us. All our failures, he took on himself. He did the painful thing to reverse that so that we could be brought to God and that we could be holy. So one of the lessons we learn from the Master is that holiness means turning away from our own convenience, our own pleasure, even the things that we think are our most basic needs, as well as turning away from sin. Turning away sometimes from things that are not sin, but are distracting us from the mission God's given us. Turning away from those things to seek God. When we think about 
the parable of the sower that we had earlier. I mean, isn't it interesting how the tares worked? They were the cares of this world. Things that may be legitimate in themselves can be things that distract us from our dedication to God. For Christ being holy meant the harder calling and if we want to be holy, it will be hard. So the point, first point, first temptation is to turn away from our pleasures to seek God. Second temptation, more briefly, the devil takes him to uh, verse 5, took him up and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is a different temptation. In some ways, Satan is in charge of this world. John 12, John 14, he's called the ruler of this world. And he offers to cede power to Jesus. In other words, he says he'll get out of the way, leave the earth to Jesus. Now, again, thinking of a passage we've already looked at today, Matthew's gospel, doesn't it? Ends with all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Well, here, Satan is offering him all authority on earth. That's not quite so good, is it? But he's offering, if you like, to get out of the way. Now, there's a question that, uh, again, the young people earlier raised as, is Satan going to keep his word? But let's assume he is for a moment. And that's a slightly risky uh, assumption. But let's just, uh, Satan says, I'm going to get out of the way. Okay? All you need to do is just a quick action. Just a quick bow. It doesn't have to take long. You can cross your fingers if you like. You don't have to make a habit of it. It doesn't have to be a very low bow. You'll never have to do it again. Just once. That's all you have to do. And I will get out of the way. Which means that you can set up your good kingdom, you know, the king of heaven, whatever it is you want to set up. Set it up, you know, I'll be out of the way. You can run, you can run the show, okay? And you don't have to go through the pain of the cross. Can you see? It's a significant offer. But Christ responds. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is a test which comes to us again and again. For the early Christians, they were pressured to worship the Roman gods, to worship the Roman emperor. At the Reformation, Christians were pressured to acknowledge the Pope or the Mass and all sorts of other things. Under communism in China, in Russia, you've got to become a party member. In our society, maybe you're pressured to wear or acknowledge a six-coloured rainbow flag or, or many other temptations. Or maybe it's just to, to laugh at the same jokes as your friends and, and the gossip and express the same opinions as them. Every society, there are pressures for God's people, rather than being holy to him, to be conformed to that society. And sometimes they just want you to do it for a bit, just a few seconds. You know, think of all the hassle you could save at work if you just allow that thing to pass. If you just, you know, a little, little bow that they're asking for. They're not necessarily asking for a big bow. They just want you to acknowledge something. And this is where we've got to be clear. There is only one whom we worship. God, under no circumstances, can we see to another. However much pressure there is around us, however much the crowd calls us, our worship of God has to be absolutely exclusive. The holy person turns away from compromise and worships God alone. 
We've got to have lines that we will never, ever cross. And yet they can come at us so subtly. It can seem to offer us so much a better life if we just go along with this. And yet we've got to resist that. The third temptation, temptation number three. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, so far, Jesus has resisted temptation twice by quoting scripture. Now, Satan's cunning and he learns from the encounter. It's a bit like, you know, uh, Mr. Incredible has to fight this machine called Omnidroid that learns from every time he engages with it. It gets better. Satan has been tempting people for a long time and he's cunning and he learns. What's more, he knows his Bible well. Satan knows his Bible better than anyone in this room, I'd say. And he, one thing he's prepared to do, he's prepared to whisper verses to us in his temptation. Only they're, they're, they're twisted. Remember how he approached the woman in Genesis chapter 3. He quoted God, but with a bit of a misquote. Did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? Well, there's some of God's stuff in that sentence, isn't there? But it's also twisted. And what he does is he likes to quote God's word and mingle with them some deceit. Let's go back uh, quickly to Genesis chapter 3 and have a look at how he does this. This is his temptation of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want us to look at that. Three things he says. One, you won't die. Two, your eyes will be opened. Three, you will be like God. Now, let's look at the truth value of those. The day they ate the fruit, did they physically die? No. Died in other ways, but they didn't physically die. Chapter 3, verse 7, the verse after they take the fruit. Then the eyes of them were opened. That fits as well. Chapter 3, verse 22. God said... The Lord God said, behold, the man has come like one of us, knowing good and evil. All three things that Satan said to Eve had truth in them. And yet he's the father of lies. You see, he knows how to twist things. That the the lie, once you mingle some truth in it, is so much more powerful a lie. And so what we see here is Satan himself quoting scripture now don't tell me oh that person must be fine because they quote scripture a lot some of the greatest charlatans on the planet quote the bible a lot so don't be taken in just because people can quote the bible here we have satan and he quotes psalm 91 verses 11 to 12 where it says for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you then he misses out the phrase in all your ways On their hands, they will bear you lest you strike your foot against the stone. Well, he misses that out because I guess that makes it sound like it's really he's going to guard you when you're walking along and so it doesn't apply to when you've gone up to the top pinnacle of the temple. That would be a a little twist that he's put on it. Uh, And if I'd been responding to Satan, 
I'll be tempted to say, well, Satan, haven't you looked at the next verse, which it says, you will tread on the lion and on the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And that sort of reminds me of Genesis 3, what will happen to the serpent. But uh, perhaps that's part of the trap. Jesus has an even better reply. You see, this idea that God's going to guard his special one, Jesus says, actually, you shouldn't put your Lord your God to the test. It seemed like a good test in a lot of ways, didn't it? Jerusalem's the capital, and the temple is the most prominent building in the capital, and the pinnacle of the temple is the most prominent bit of the most prominent building of the most prominent city. So in terms of visibility, no more visible place. You throw yourself down from there, priests are down on the bottom, sit watching, everyone sees it. Wow, what a way to launch your ministry. You know, uh, it's, it's going to get lots and lots of recognition. You know, any of those priests who are having doubts about what miracles might be going up in northern Galilee, they couldn't deny it if it was under their own nose in their own place. Now, given that they didn't have mass media back then and, and TV and so on, it's about as prominent as you can imagine. And is there a command in the Bible saying, don't throw yourself down from the temple? I mean, there's this sort of, seems to be some support for the idea that you would actually, you know, uh, God will look after his one if he's not going to, you know, scratch his foot against a stone. Well, certainly he's not going to get hurt in any bigger way. Let's just test God. Do you know, did you ever hear about the scientific experiments which showed that prayer didn't work? You can look up on Wikipedia for this. By the way, remember, Wikipedia was founded by an atheist. Um, and all you have to do is look at the subject, studies on intercessory prayer. That's the article in Wikipedia. And uh, this is how it begins. Meta-studies, which means studies of studies of the literature in the field, have been performed showing evidence only for no effect or potentially small effect of prayer. A 2006 meta-analysis, that's an analysis of an analysis, on 14 studies concluded there is no discernible effect. Well, how shocking. Prayer has no effect. When they do their experiments on prayer with a control group and another group and they do their praying, nothing happens. Wow, that proves prayer is a waste of time, doesn't it? No, that's about as silly as an experiment as you can get because guess what? God says... He's not going to be tested. And those that thought that you can test the effectiveness of the God who says you can't test his effectiveness by testing his effectiveness. Duh! <laughs> you know, he's not going to play the game. Sorry. So whether it's the great ex- prayer experiment or the dramatic jump off the temple experiment, it's not what we should be doing. Imagine, you know, you go on a, um, you're in the early stages of romance and you go on a date together. And you announce to the other person, I'm going to run an experiment on you. I'm going to run a test on you. I mean, how, how's the relationship going to go? Not very far. God doesn't like it when we say, well, I'm going to test and see how good you are, God. And, you know, uh, and, and whether you do miraculous saves and so on. So Jesus meets Satan's misuse of scripture with proper use of scripture. Israel tested God in the desert. Jesus refused it. So that's what we need to do. We need to follow Jesus and not test God. You know, it'd be easy for Jesus to have sought quick fame. We can be tempted to do the same thing. We can be tempted to think we just need to get some recognition, find a way just to attract a crowd and, you know, that's a good way. But if it's not God's way, we need to turn away from it. 
And we need to think about the ways that we do things. If we're going to be holy as a movement, as a group, that we should always be seeking God's ways. So what we've seen is three things that uh, Jesus turns away from. He turns away from his own pleasures. He turns away from just seeking power. Uh, uh, He turns away from seeking um, uh, praise from humans. And he turns to God's word. He turns to God's worship. He turns to trusting God. If we are going to be holy, we need to turn away from things, even sometimes legitimate things, that are getting in the way of our calling that we should be God's special people. He sent the most special one to die for us that we should be the most special people. And he's done all the work. He's, He's paid the price for our sins. He's sent to us the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to acknowledge him in our lives to turn away sometimes even from legitimate pleasures to not think we can compromise and bow down to the world's idols, to not think that we can seek praise and how much we can do just seeking people's affirmation. I mean, those of us who are involved in social media as I am, I mean, how often are we, we looking at, at, you know, how much have people liked what we've done? How much do we seek approbation from people? Jesus is the master. He is the best teacher of holiness. And he went to the cross and he calls us to do the same to take up our cross and follow him. If we want to learn from the master, we may need to make the same hard decisions that he made. But guess what? We're not doing it in our strength. We're doing it in his, with the power of the Holy Spirit, who can come on us because Christ, by his infinitely precious blood, has sanctified us. And that's why we know we're on the victory side. We are going to be presented before God without fault, without blemish in his sight. That should be a real encouragement that holiness, to seek holiness, is to be on the side which will win the successful side. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfection and we thank you that he has paid the price for us. What an amazing thing. May we be challenged by his life, challenged to turn away from things towards you. Be with us now, in Christ's name. Amen.